Welcome to the Court of Appeals. I'm Judge Valerie Zachary. Uh, to my right is Judge Allegra Collins. To my left is Judge Allison Riggs. Assisting us today is Senior Deputy Clerk uh, Eddie Sanders and Officer Richard Remillard. On the calendar this afternoon, we have Gray Media Group uh, doing business as WBTV versus City of Charlotte on appeal from Mecklenburg County Superior Court. Is counsel ready to, to proceed? And have we reserved time for rebuttal? Okay, how, how much? Five minutes. Five minutes. Okay, great. Go ahead and proceed. Thank you, Your Honors. My name is Caitlin Gurney. I'm with the law firm of Ballard Spar, and I'm representing Gray Media Group, doing business as WBTV. This case is about one contract and one case, Womack Newspapers versus Kitty Hawk, from this court, and the willful failure of the state's largest city to follow the plain language of either. In the process, the city of Charlotte threatens to eviscerate one of the finest public record statutes in this entire country and have presented a playbook for other municipalities, smaller municipalities, to do the same thing. It's a two-part playbook. First and foremost, do your business uh, with a private contractor and put the records that you do not want the public to see in the hands of that contractor. The second part, presumes that if you indeed have a requester who can afford to sue, then after that lawsuit is filed, serve a Rule 45 subpoena and make sure that you can argue that the matter is moot. That's precisely the circumstances we have here today. We got here by a series of choices by the city of Charlotte. First and foremost, it was the city of Charlotte's choice to do business with a private contractor, and not just any private contractor, one of the largest private contractors in the country, Ernst & Young, the consultant. Trying to help its city council get along better, it engaged Ernst & Young for a, a lesson in how to get along a little better, and, and through sent surveys to all of the city council members, which they filled out, pursuant to a hyperlink. So the city council members themselves were filling out these materials and sending them to Ernst & Young, which Ernst & Young retained for the purpose of their, their work product. It was also the city of Charlotte's choice when they received a public records request from David Hodges of WBTV for the records, both the contract and the survey responses. They granted the request for the contract itself, which will figure prominently in our discussion here today, but denied the request for the survey responses, saying that they didn't have possession of them, and so they were not public records. This litigation ensued, and after initial motion practice and some discovery, WBTV moved for summary judgment. And then it was the city of Charlotte's choice, once again, instead of immediately responding to that motion for summary judgment, served, they served a subpoena on Ernst & Young. And Ernst & Young immediately responded to that subpoena 
uh, no objections, uh, no motion practice, uh, and produced precisely the public records that WBTV had sought in the first place, albeit 16 months later. So question, um, <laughs> Ernst & Young created this questionnaire, correct? They did, Your Honor. Uh, and then there was a hyperlink to allow the council members to fill it out, correct? Correct, Your Honor. So where were those records actually made? I would assume they were made on some server that was not inside, um, I don't know, Town Hall? Was it, was it, did it reside on Ernst & Young's server? Uh, Your Honor, as I understand it, I'm sure the uh, able counsel for the city of Charlotte can clarify. Uh, the city council members used their own computers to fill out these surveys. So while our discovery didn't exactly go to where they were or on whose server it was at the precise time, they were using their own computers to fill out these surveys that then went to the cloud and then went to Ernst & Young for processing. So, so it doesn't matter where the survey resided? I don't believe it does, Your Honor. Uh, even under some of the, we, we do have one case which the city has cited, the Durham Herald case, which talks about possession and, and receipt of a third party's records in, in terms of when they became public. Now the Womack newspapers case distinguished the Durham Herald case and said that's about one statute. But if you look at the Durham Herald case and when that, it talks about when something becomes a public record. And it's that receipt of the materials from the third party and the action upon it by the city officials that would make it a public record. So under that Durham Herald case, the, the act of filling out the receipt and then the filling out of the surveys would, would take all questions out of it. Uh, and it would indeed be a public record at that time. So even if a council member were to go inside Ernst <coughs> Young's physical office and fill out a paper survey, at, the, at that point is your contention that it's still a public record? Well, that's an interesting question, and one we actually don't have to reach because there is a contract that makes it so extraordinarily clear that every part of the work product of Ernst & Young, except for uh, certain intellectual property that we don't believe to be at issue here, is indeed public record. Well, and that's, that leads us to a question I have, which can the parties by contract decide what's going to be a public record? Uh, well, it's a two, I think it's a, at here we have an issue where, where that was decided. We both have action that demonstrates what is a public record uh, through the receipt, through the filling out by public officials of materials sent to them. And then we just have pure possession by Ernst & Young. And case law from this court demonstrates that possession is not part of it. But, so I would, I would argue, Your Honor, that, that were we to have that before us, um, it, it very much, all of the actions here demonstrate that we had a public record created, separate and apart from the contract. But we have the contract that goes above and beyond uh, 
anything necessary to underscore that this is city property. We have it twice said, we, uh, where it says exclusive owner, city ownership, twice. Um, we have, uh, if you want to look at the contract, it's section six, explicitly states city, that's even the heading, city ownership of work product. Uh, then section eight restates that yet again. Um, and section eight, quite notably, underscores that when the city requests the work product created pursuant to the contract, it will be immediately provided. We have no evidence here that the city ever requested this. Instead, and then we have section, section eight also repeats that this is a, a public record, it's the city's property, and then section 10, again, taking an even extra step, says that uh, the materials are gonna be subject to the Public Records Act. So, so we have this contract that is extraordinarily clear, even if the actions themselves were not clear, which, which we would submit they are as well. Let's just, let's assume for a moment that the contract and the wording of the contract doesn't create or determine whether it's a public record. I wanna go back to my question. If a city council member were to have gone inside Ernst & Young's building, answered a questionnaire designed by Ernst & Young, and left it in Ernst & Young's possession and walked out, is that a public record? I believe so, Your Honor. I believe when you have the business of <coughs> city government come, city government has to act through its officials. So when you have something that is for the city's work product, but for city business, and you have them doing the public's business, no matter where they are, even if it is on the ground, it doesn't have to be in City Hall. It, the question is whether it's related to the public business and are they acting in their official capacity and are they creating a record? If so, the Public Records Act would, su would suggest that, that that is indeed the creation of a public record. Again, underscoring that this, this court has been very clear that there is no uh, possession element at, that's part of, of the Public Records Act. As, as you know, and we're here today, the Superior Court did not agree with us. Uh, there was a three-part ruling in October 2022, finding first that the case was moot because WBTV had received the records that it sought, even though it was 16 months later. Secondly, denying WBTV's summary judgment motion and granting the city's motion despite the finding that it was moot. Uh, and third, denying WBTV's request for its attorney's fees, despite the fact that it had indeed obtained the public records by virtue of filing this lawsuit. And unless the court has further questions, I'll address each of those in turn. All Please right. Please go ahead. Thank you. So first and foremost, the Superior Court erred because this case is not moot. This court's case law demonstrates that how you determine whether a case is moot is you look to the complaint. And if you look to the complaint, or rather the amended complaint here, <clears throat> WBTV has not received much of the relief it sought. As page 137 of the record indicates, there has been no writ of mandamus ordering compliance 
with the Public Records Act. And there has been no declaratory judgment that the Ernst & Young surveys are public records as defined in the Public Records Act. Even if that weren't enough, this case does, and <clears throat> several cases demonstrate, fall into the accept, uh, an exception to the mootness doctrine, which is it is capable of repetition but evading review. And that's a two-part inquiry. First, we take capable of repetition, which Judge Archie of the Superior Court did indeed state in, in her order, denying uh, finding that the case was moot. She said that it was capable of repetition. And indeed, the city in its briefing has, has conceded this and appears to suggest the same circumstances could happen yet again. And we don't have to imagine them. If you look at the brief filed by the amici, there's examples of cases uh, of fine reporting that's been done where the records were obtained from third parties, even in Charlotte, with the city of Charlotte. Uh, there was a reporting by the requester here, Mr. David Hodges, related to the Charlotte city transit system, CATS, which is entirely in the hands of a private contractor. We don't have to reach very far to think of being right here again. Uh, even further, we have cases, and our briefing is full of them, such as Boney Publishers, uh, News and Observer versus Coble, uh, Beaufort City Board of Education, the Cumberland County Hospital Systems, in dealing with this, the Public Records Act, and other statutes, such as the Open Meetings Law, where this court construes the statutes liberally and finds that indeed the mootness exception here to be applicable. And in terms of the evading review part of the doctrine, uh, it's not about time as the city's briefing suggests. Uh, it is indeed too short to be litigated any time we have the potential as we do here that we had uh, these kinds of cases are always going to be subject to a Rule 45 subpoena because they involve a third party by their inherent nature. And whether that subpoena is filed immediately upon the filing of a lawsuit, which of course again takes resources, and the idea of our Public Records Act is that that shouldn't need, be needed in the first place. Uh, so, or it could take 16 months as it did here, but, and it, nor is this an advisory opinion. Can I, can I go back to the, the two specific requests for relief that you say that you didn't get, which makes this case not moot? So you talked about this writ of mandamus. Yes, sir. Could the court actually file a writ of mandamus or enter a writ of mandamus in this case? You already have the records, right? Right. But that, and who are they going to, who's, who's, who are you going to mandate? Well, if you look to the case that we, we cite all over the briefing in this matter, uh, the WAMC newspapers case uh, talks about the nature of, of mandamus being extraordinarily appropriate in public records cases. And that goes to, right, because that's, that's a future action. Here we have the city of Charlotte refuses to acknowledge that this is indeed a public record. So we have future conduct at great risk of of also being at issue here, and again, being right back here before. So I do believe a writ of mandamus is appropriate. If you look at the News and Observer versus Coble decision, there's also a discussion there distinguishing between declaratory judgment and a writ of mandamus, excuse me, mandamus, and the idea that they are two separate 
types of relief that you can seek in a Public Records Act case. So you want the Superior Court to order the city of Charlotte to do something in the future? Like, should this arise again? To, to follow the law? Yes, Your Honor, I do. I, I, I think we have the willful failure to follow the Public Records Act. And then the second part of that that we never received a ruling on is whether these are in fact public records, these surveys, uh, precisely the question you, you were asking about, se even separate and apart from, from the contract. And a declaratory judgment ruling would, in theory, resolve this issue, at least uh, some subcategory of it, of what, what is or isn't um, under the Public Records Act so that in the future when um, a good government group or a media group is trying to get access to documents under the public records, there's no longer a we're withholding because we don't believe this is a public record. Precisely, Your Honor, because if you look, since, since the initial requests, initial letters between lawyers in this matter, we had both sides citing Womack newspapers versus Kitty Hawk which would suggest that there is some, while it's an excellent decision, it would suggest that there is some room for clarification. The city has latched onto the first, there's two parts of Womack newspaper's decision that the records were in fact uh, subject to the Public Records Act. We've focused on the second part of that. The city has focused on the first, which we believe to be irrelevant here, which is a test for whether uh, about who, what is a public agency. Uh, here we are not contending, we do not want to contend that Ernst & Young is a public agency. Here we would argue that by virtue of this contract, what we have is the only public agency here is the city of Charlotte. And so then we go to the second part of that, which is extraordinarily clear in very strong language. This court declares that it would eviscerate the Public Records Act to have this idea that you could put public records, the public's business, out of, hand, out of bounds by putting them with a third party. And so because of that, yes, <laughs> that the, there is some room in Womack newspapers. We believe it to be quite clear, but I, I suspect this uh, counsel for the city of Charlotte will tell you it's clear the other way and, and cite some other decisions, such as the SELC decision, which we simply do not believe to be relevant here because, again, we are not suggesting that Ernst & Young is an a public agency. Can we go back to the, the trial court's determination that while this is likely to repeat, it can be fully litigated in the future? I know you're disclaiming time as a relevant factor, but assume for sake of arguments that it is a, is a relevant factor. In this case, there was some delay, it seems like, with just normal complex civil litigation. Isn't it, after you filed the complaint and in the course of getting a scheduling order, I mean, you could have um, issued a Rule 45 subpoena to Ernst & Young, couldn't you have? We. I suppose we could have, but that's also, A, I would argue that if we had to do that to get WBT, the records WBTV sought, we have already gotten a denial pursuant to the Public Records Act. Because if you look at 132-6, it states that public records are to be produced as promptly as possible. So promptly as possible would have been right when we received that contract 
in March of 2021 upon our initial request. Uh, and so no matter what, even if there had been that, if we had been the ones to issue the subpoena, which again, we do not believe we had to be those, the, those ones. If we had done that in when we filed suit three months later, that's not as promptly as possible and, and we believe would have already been a denial. Um, so, and, and the city has repeatedly suggested that WBTV should have brought Ernst and Young into this litigation and, and respectfully, or that Ernst and Young is a necessary party, that we should have been the ones to subpoena them. And we respectfully believe that that's a straw man. It, it is not what the Public Records Act is about. And that would get us to decisions, uh, uh, case law, perhaps then we would reach SELC and questions of who is and isn't a public agency, but we don't need to reach that because it's so clear, obviously, that the city of Charlotte is indeed a, a public agency. Should the trial court have held a hearing more quickly after the filing of the amended complaint? Like I'm trying to get, is this a statutory problem? Is this the party's problem? Is this the trial court's problem? Um, if they had, if the trial court had issued an opinion in, let's say, December of 21, you amended your complaint in November, if they had issued this order in December of 21, would that have been a situation then on appeal, this could have been litigated fully? I think for you, if, if you're looking for where the delay took place, there was initial motion, pra motion practice. Um, uh, and such that we didn't get the ruling on the initial motion to dismiss, which of course found that Ernst Young was not a necessary party until November 2021. We did, we filed the amended complaint promptly. There, there was a brief extension, I believe, for the city to respond. And then we did serve discovery to, to make it, we wanted to find out a little more about the nature of, of these surveys and that's how we did indeed find out, you know, the, the information about the hyperlinks and the like um, that we received through, uh, through discovery. I think that was early in 2022. And then uh, we filed our motion for summary judgment in April of 2022. So it wasn't until, until discovery that you knew that there was a email with the hyperlink of the survey sent as opposed to Judge Collins' hypothetical of where you go to Ernst & Young's office and interviewed there? I think, Your Honor, uh, we did receive some emails at the time uh, that, of our initial request, as, uh, which, which may have suggested the hyperlink issue there, too. In part, that was those emails were the basis for uh, a, our original second claim, uh, which was related to the destruction of records, uh, which we believe was quite clear from, from those uh, Rec emails that were produced. Uh, however, uh, the, it was denied without prejudice, um, or, or the city's motion to dismiss that claim was, was granted without prejudice, and we simply to focus on the public records issue we have here before us, uh, focused on the claim that was not denied, uh, rather than reasserting the second claim in our amended complaint. Can I ask you briefly about attorney's fees? So I understand yes. that you, your, your argument is you successfully <clears throat> compelled production by the fact that they produced them ultimately, correct? It, and thus you should be allowed attorney's fees. Correct. 
Would the outcome of this appeal change that? Were we to decide the merits of this case and determine that the trial court did not err? Well, Your Honor, I, I, I think that's an interesting hypothetical because you could find that the court was correct in its mootness decision, and that would have nothing to do about whether we were entitled to our attorney's fees by virtue of this litigation successfully compelling the production of those records. So I would argue, actually, that you could affirm the trial court's decision in that respect, but that would have nothing to do with, if you look at the plain uh, language of 132-9, and uh, there, the, the language that talks about successfully compelling the production. I, I guess my question is, it goes a step further. If we, if we went beyond mootness and determined that, that the trial court didn't err by determining that these weren't public records? Well, the, it's a, that gets to an interesting question of the trial court, which, which okay. never, the, the, the trial court did indeed grant the city's motion for summary judgment, yeah. but I don't know that the city, that the trial court should have done that if they found that the case was moot. So uh, we don't really know why they granted summary judgment. Correct. Okay. There, it, was, it was simply that the city's motion for summary judgment was granted. So I would argue that there was a procedural error there alone. But returning to this mootness issue, there is a rather clear basis just in 132.9 that if you do indeed find that this matter is, is moot, which of course <laughs> we, we, we believe there's two full reasons that it is not, but if you should find that, there's still a way to uh, institute the spirit, emphasize the spirit of the Public Records Act, which is in 132-9, and because that's about whether a requester has success successfully compelled the disclosure of public records, in which case the court shall allow a party to recover its reasonable uh, attorney's fees. Now, there's no question here that but for the filing of this litigation, there would be no Rule 45 subpoena. You're going into your rebuttal time. Oh, all right. Well, then, Your Honor, I can, unless you have any, any questions. questions. No, thank you. Any I, I will sit down and just note uh, for the record that, that we do believe that we should have our attorney's fees on top of, uh, hopefully, a declaration that these are indeed public records. And I will see you for my rebuttal time. Thank you. Thank you. May it please the court, Daniel Peterson for the city of Charlotte. Thank you for having us up to oral argument today. Um, your honors, it is indisputable that the city did not have possession of the SOT records at the time this complaint was filed. And these were records created, to your honors point, in Ernst & Young's web space using their proprietary intellectual property. Were these um, surveys filled out on city-owned computers? We are not sure of that because the plaintiff never instituted discovery to that effect, Your Honor. Did you have any obligation as an agency um, with duties under the Public Records Act to see if there were retained um, copies of the answers supplied by city council members in the course of doing public business on city-owned computers? Thank you for that question, Your Honor. I think the, the answer to that is kind of a twofold. I think if those 
answers resided on a city server, I think that obligation would have existed. Here, one, there's, there's no evidence that it ever did. The issue is... Well, but I guess what wrong. I'm asking you is, you say there's no evidence. I'm asking you, did you have an obligation to look to see if in the cookies or in the history of the city computers that they retained this information? Typically speaking, Your Honor, it's my understanding that metadata, such as those found in cookies and, and those kind of things, those sort of, um, trying to search for the word, the um, intrinsic uh, cookies within the, the uh, excuse me, in any event, the... I get, metadata. Is a metadata, That's thank the you. Word thank you, Your Honor. Yes, I got lost on, my, on the cookies there. The, the metadata is not typically seen as a public record in itself or else we would be subjected to constantly digging into metadata. Well, so let me ask you, do you have any case that you're relying on for the conclusion that metadata isn't subject to the Public Records Act? I don't have a case, but and it's not in my briefing, but I do have um, a, I know the UNC School of Government has opined on that in, its, in, its, um, in a book by Professor Lawrence, I'm, I think it's Bill Lawrence, related to metadata. Well, so let me, that's, let me pose a hypothetical, right? Yeah, sure. Technology is changing. Would it be legal for the city under the Public Records Act to, for security purposes, say we're going to do all of our notes and emailing not on city servers and not using city email, but we're going to contract with this storage company or online security company and have all of our emails and our um, correspondence hosted there to keep it super safe and the city council members will only have access to it for a couple of days and then we don't have it anymore. Would that comply with the Public Records Act? Such as a cloud technology, yeah. if I may ask, Your Honor? Sorry. I but it, yeah, it's a, it's a cloud technology, but it's, it, I'm getting to where's the line between what you're suggesting is we can contract with all of these other parties um, and have city council members doing city business on city dime do all this work somewhere else such that we can say we don't have access to it. Um, where does that stop? Like here it's a survey for, you know, community building, team building, but what other city business then does that open the door to? Or where's the line for me to say that that isn't a slippery slope? I think in this case, Your Honor, it's because it just was a link that, that was on the city server itself and that they clicked through, again, going using Ernst & Young's um, data. However, to directly answer your question, I do think the cloud technology would be still a public records, uh, it would be a public record. I think the case law would be clear that you can't just house it somewhere else for the purposes of, of obscuring it from the public record, Your Honor. So is your distinction here the difference between being cloud-based and Ernst & Young's server? I think that's right, Your Honor, specifically with the fact that in the contract that um, opposing counsel references, and we cite um, in full block quotes, talks about the proprietary nature of this particular data. So the court doesn't have to reach, reach the writ large um, situation where we've got, and, and I'm sure that's already developing today as, as technology develops where we're housing, for instance, Microsoft or Google's, you know, cloud technology. That's a different situation from what we have here where, where emails that were literally typed out by city council members or the city attorney, etc. Um, here we've got 
in the contract itself from record page 143, a discussion of proprietary data methodologies, processes, and that the subpoena that I, I issued to Ernst & Young, Ernst & Young responded explicitly making it clear that it was because of the narrow phrasing of said subpoena that they responded at all. And then two, they, they, marked it, they marked the production confidential. Now they did not seek a protective order, so under Rule 45D1 I had an obligation and did so the same day, turning it over to opposing counsel. So I got a few questions from there. First is, I understand the law is once something's been sent, sent to a governmental or an agency email or mailbox, that receipt is what triggers the um, creation of a public record. So I guess my question is, is, are you, is the fact that it was a hyperlink as opposed to a survey sent, is that critical to your analysis? I think it is, Your Honor. I, 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 and kind of going to this, to again, kind of the, well, we've got the facts here to what could this, where does the slippery slope stop? I do think it is important because the, what would, kind of going to the question Judge Collins had about the, about going, a city council member going and filling out a, a survey, a hand survey in Ernst & Young's offices, would that city council member, would the law require that city council member to take a photocopy of it with them before leaving the building? And I, I just don't think it does. I don't think the Public Records Act envisions that. Perhaps the Public Records Act needs some updating from down the street, Your Honor, for these types of issues. However, I think because it was a hyperlink, and to use that analogy, here that would have required city council members to screenshot their responses and save them. That's a, that's a separate act. What they did was they opened this hyperlink, answered the questions, and the questions themselves, to be clear, are Ernst & Young does these kinds of surveys nationwide, and I would posit that those would be part of their proprietary and methodology data that they've developed, that they reserve as, as confidential, that under our public record statute, the proprietary data um, exception exists. The answer that city council members gave yes, in their own words on city on the city's on the taxpayers' dime that's Cre created on the city created on we mm -hmm. sounds like at least possibly on city computers. That's Ernst and Young's proprietary proprietary information. Well, I think it's I think it's the, the these were primarily uh, not all primarily multiple choice answers um, that you're, you're clicking on. Um, and then there were a few open-ended questions, it's my understanding, from the production. Um, however, I do think that the way the, the tool that Ernst & Young has developed does kind of portend these methodologies um, as proprietary. But then also under the Womack decision, the, Ernst & Young and under the SELC decision, Ernst & Young is not an agency of the, of the city, such as a city attorney's office, if would be wherein Kitty Hawk, they hired a town, uh, they hired a private law firm to be their duly designated town attorney. So say the city, on that, so say the city hires Joe Smith, court transcriptionist, to transcribe a public hearing you're having in um, North Charlotte. And you say, Joe Smith, I want you to transcribe uh, a verbatim what happens at this public hearing, what we say, what they say. City council members are here on the public dime. Um, and we believe that this will be a public record. 
Um, and then the Joe Smith forgets to send you the transcript when it's done. If plaintiffs in this case come to you and say, we want the transcript from that hearing, do you have an obligation to say to Joe Smith, give me my work product, give me what, what is a public record? I, don't, I, I think in that situation, Your Honor, the, the answer is that the so the, the court transcription is still has the record in Right, that that's what I'm saying. Just yes, like Honor. Ernst & Young has the answers mm -hmm. here, it's something you paid for, you wanted, it's the, during the transaction of city business, but you don't physically have it, but you own it. You paid for it, mm -hmm. you paid the bills. I don't think so because there is a possession requirement in our, in our statutes, or in our jurisprudence rather, um, as a, that you are allowed under the State Employees Association case that possession, while not needed to be pled um, in a public records complaint, still is a defense to the Public Records Act. And again, going back to we heard about choices in this case, plaintiff could have put Ernst and Young as a defendant in this in this case and obtain the same. So, so in your example, Your Honor, the court reporter would then be on uh, in the in the eventual complaint. Is there such a thing as constructive possession? Generally speaking, or it, well, in the, yes, Your Honor, in the okay, so Charlotte, the city of Charlotte could be in constructive possession of the documents that are in Ernst and Young's physical possession because they actually have a contract to have that information. Correct? Yes. Again, the nuts, again with the the proprietary data exception that I've already discussed. So, if we talk about the proprietary data, it, is there a difference between um, what's done with the answers to the questions that come from city council member and whatever bar graphs and re uh, recommendations that you all make. Seems like one is what the city council member said and the other is what you do with it and that's the proprietary part. I, th I think that it's not, it's not the city's proprietary part, it's I think Ernst again and the Young's. Ernst and Young's. Let's say, so it's their bar graph, right? They, they created some sort of deliverable with yes, the answers, Honor. correct? Yes, Your Honor. But the city council members actually answered, and that's the public record we're talking about, correct? Well, I think the, 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 the question, though, and the answer, I mean, you, you could. The, you say, no you say that, that the, question, the question, right. by virtue of how the questionnaire is put together, is proprietary. That's your argument? Yes, Your Honor, okay. it is. Um, and. and and in, in this case, I think it's important to note that, again, these types of proxy fights can be avoided by having Ernst or a third party in the litigation itself. Um, they could have been avoided by getting the documents, the plaintiff getting the documents originally um, in itself. And I think that that's, that's a, a critical distinction here, Your Honor. Really? Go ahead. Oh, no, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, it seems to me that you're, the large issue is whether the city can keep its documents in the possession of a third party and shield it from the Public Records Act. I mean, that's that's the question we're trying to answer, right? I, I think that's part of it, but I also think, again, we're talking about the Womack decision with there being an agency in play here, Your Honor, and the SELC decision where the North Carolina Railroad is owned by the state and was not deemed to be a state agency and thus 
not subject to the Public Records Act. Well, would you agree that the Public Records Act was to promote transparency, governmental transparency? Yes, Your Honor. Okay, so is it, what is it, wasn't the city in possession of these responses right before the city council members hit send? When they, when it's on this, when it's on a city computer, they're answering this, they've, com they've completed the survey, right before they hit send, did you have possession? Assuming they were on a city, on the city network, even once you hit send, you can still pick it up in the send, whatever bin. Well, respectfully, Your Honor, I don't think so in this case. I think it was because it was a hyper a hyperlink that they clicked. Mm -hmm. They didn't respond to an email. I think okay. this would be different if the city again responded or city council members responded to said email. Mm -hmm. I think again they're they're being directed to Ernst and Young's web space was the issue here. Okay. Yes, Your Honor. Do you, I, I mean, I'm still struggling with, in particular, with this hyperlink. I mean, my, help me find a, a grip for a limiting principle here, because I'm in imagining a, um, a lobbying firm, um, a, a law firm, sa sending hyperlinked surveys to legislators or to um, uh, city council members, and essentially, like, asking for positions that the voters are entitled to know about and under your argument particularly with the the information goes back to the in this in my hypothetical the lobbyist server and it's a hyperlink not an attached survey i i'm having trouble finding any distinction between these two and and the latter is is seems to run really counter to the spirit and the letter of the public records act i think that's a legitimate concern your honor Um, but in, in, in deciding this, Your Honor, I think we've got this, the, the, the initial mm -hmm. question of the mootness matter as well. If, if I may, I, I don't want to cut off any questioning, um, but the, the fact is, is that we proceeded with, we had an original complaint filed in June of 2021 that contained a lot in it, Your Honor, to put it politely. And, and, and the city felt the 15 defendants at that time felt that we needed to pursue the motions practice that we were very successful in, except for one, one part of the, the complaint, the first claim for relief, that we've been primarily discussing at this juncture, Your Honor, um, Your Honors. And then we, we had to go get, we had to file a motion to strike because there were references to memes. There was a accusation that the city attorney destroyed public records. He was named as a, as a defendant. So we had to go through the motions practice and that original complaint. And then, only at that, the, the plaintiff was directed to file an amended complaint excising these allegations, and then um, going forward from there, and kind of to address the court's question um, in, during plaintiff's time, was, you know, plaintiff did not put the matter up for hearing immediately after an answer was filed, wherein we did plead lack of possession. There was no subpoena at any time during that buildup to Ernst and Young, there was no motion for judgment on the pleadings, for example, filed by the plaintiff. We, we filed the motion to dismiss, and at that point, um, the, we had, in other words, we had to narrow the issues at play 
and that resulted in the November amended complaint. Where I'm going with that, Your Honor, is that this, while it is possible that this is repeatable, and I would still posit that this is not the situation, we've only had the hypotheticals at this point, um, that those issues can then be fully litigated later because the procedural timing, speed matters in these mootness cases, the procedural issues in this case were completely of plaintiff's own creation. And so the, the, uh, the issues before the court can be fully litigated the next time around to the extent that um, this is even repeatable. Um, and the, excuse me if I may just pull a page up here. <clears throat> And the cases cited in our, our, our briefing emphasize the point that the, all, all those cases were mootness. There was a mootness exception here. It was because it was days between the challenged act. The, the timing was measured in days, not months, and not almost a year as it was here. And so the fact that I, you know, we were accused of gamesmanship by submitting a subpoena um, using the rules of procedure equally available to both parties um, should just not be the dis it, it just should not be considered here because the yes your honor well so i mean i just isn't that civil practice generally i mean i the you're under an obligation representing your client to engage in whatever no, no, motions practice necessary to narrow the issues mm -hmm. being respectful of the court's time which is much appreciated um when is that not going to be the case under a public records Act case. I mean, so what's the enforcement mechanism if plaintiff files um, a motion for judgment on the pleadings and tries to get calendared and you say, I need, I need some more time to respond to the amended complaint. Not saying that's unreasonable. It's fairly normal. Need some more time to respond to the complaint. Need to issue a, a you know, we have a scheduling order. I want to issue a, a subpoena. All of those things take time. And so what's the enforcement mechanism to, to uh, avoid this repetition in the normal structure of civil, pra civil practice in this state? If I understand the court's question, please stop me if I'm, I'm not responsive. Um, in, in this case, it was completely avoidable. There were photographs of, of the mayor described as a meme in the complaint. This wasn't typical motions practice. No, and so, I mean, yeah. okay, so the motions practice ended after the amended complaint. I guess that my, my question is from the amended complaint on, I know there was a, a delay or a request for an extension to respond. Um, there was some discovery on, it sounds like both sides. Um, if there, and maybe all the motions practice was done, but all of what I just described takes time. And if there's an urgent issue, I'm trying to figure out is this the court's error? Is it the plaintiff's error? Or is this something where the way that the, the need for urgent information is just at conflict with the, the pace of civil practice? Thank you, Your Honor. I understand the question now. The, 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 the pace is that there's a provision in the Public Records Act that talks about setting it for a meet. The court shall set it for, I think, maybe immediate hearing may not be the word, but something. Um, priority hearing or something to that effect. And there are procedural mechanisms that plaintiff could have, it, whether it was a motion for judgment on the pleadings or just a, a motion for expedited discovery or a motion for this, that, you know, there are, there are procedural mechanisms within Rule 26 
et cetera, that within Rule 40, I think within Rule 45, that this could have been brought quicker instead of, and the discovery we're talking about here, Your Honor, if I'm not mistaken, and the record will correct me if I'm not, was served pretty quickly with the original complaint. It was actually part of the protective order during the um, pendency of the original complaint. So we had responded to the discovery pretty quickly um, thereafter, either before or shortly thereafter responding to the amended complaint. And, and to be frank, I, I, we, most of the time when, for instance, a you know, in my practice, as often in the defense side of, of it in a civil practice, if I file a motion for summary judgment before the, dis the discovery deadline, the first response is, well, Your Honor, discovery is not closed yet kind of thing. And so from my perspective, I, I was just kind of like, okay, what, what are we, what's next kind of thing. And that's where I, I was, you know, candidly a little surprised that, that there wasn't more discovery into the very questions this court has asked about what is Ernst & Young's position precisely on the proprietary data and I'm kind of in the position of making almost Ernst & Young's argument for them and somewhat of a proxy situation. And, and that's where I think I, I've, I, I hear and, and certainly um, understand the court's concern about the slippery slope, but on the flip side, the slippery slope here, and I think this goes back to why this can be fully litigated the next time. The slippery slope here is why is the public agency being put into a proxy fight with a requestor? Well, had you re had you requested the information from Ernst Young uh, prior to the subpoena, Your Honor? Yes, I had not. So, you you know you, you may have avoided having to be in a proxy um, fight with with Ernst Young by just requesting it. Well, I, I think uh, your, your Honor is correct, but the the response from Ernst Young suggests that it may have been a proxy fight um, because they did say, you know, I've got the language here, if I, if I may bring it up, um, find it in my notes here, that the, they, again, they marked the documents confidential and they said the, the narrow subpoena phrasing obviated the need for them to do objections. And then they reserved the right of, hey, if you mean anything broader than what we're giving you, mark confidential, we are going um, we reserve the right to further object. Um, so I think that that predicts a proxy. Doesn't fight. the city or any public agency have an obligation under 132-7 to keep public records in a place that are safe and relatively easy to access for public inspection? So I guess my, to your arguments about, well, this, this is a proxy war and it's on the city and that's not fair, isn't it the, you know, with the city making the decision to have Ernst & Young send these hyperlinks and not share the response in an easily accessible way with that and then not just asking them. I mean, if you can narrowly can write, a, write up a subpoena, you can narrowly write up an ask. Um, like, it, the, the, it seems like these are not, while a proxy war issue might be an, uh, something we'd be concerned about when it's the a problem of your own creation by these two choices and you have an obligation to keep public records in a safe and accessible place under the statute. Explain to me why the, the proxy concerns overcome that. Well, I, I think here it would be in, in 
that scenario, Ernst & Young's responsibility to keep them in uh, under 132-7. Um, however, uh, the, the, Your Honor is correct that if it was the city's obligation, then under 132-7, that is, that is the depiction, that is the, the statutory mandate, Your Honor. But, um, does the sure. city have an obligation to even ask for the document? I, uh, as unsatisfying as it may be, Your Honor, I don't think the statute contemplates that ask, um, particularly in the situation where we've got, again, and I hate to be a broken record, but this sort of pre-existing IP situation that that the court has, has asked me about. So, so as long as every, everything's responded to them in hyperlink, then no governmental agency will have to produce it in a um, Public Records Act. Right? I, I think only if it's, again, if I think of there's only this IP concern, Your Honor. Um, I think that if, if it's not, I think in kind of going to the cloud kind of um, example, I, I think that that situation doesn't arise here because I don't think that's an IP issue. Don't so, you still so let's, let's just think if you sent a hyperlink and this is going to go to the IP issue, and although it's not proprietary questionnaire, you use a proprietary type of encryption. All of a sudden you've manipulated it with some sort of pro proprietary software. And the only way to unencrypt un it is with a proprietary key. Yes, Your Honor. Are we, are we left with the same situation where we can't get those documents because they're encrypted with proprietary information and we can't use that proprietary key? I, under that hypothetical, I think either whomever has the obligation, either the, like in this case, the city or. So this is Ernst, it's, it's Ernst & Young's server, it's Ernst & Young's hyperlink, it's Ernst & Young's encryption. I, I think at that point they would have the obligation, knowing they're working with a public entity, to go create the, the record, uh, or to go kind of strip it of so Ernst and Young would would then uh, own or possess this document and it would be Ernst and Young's responsibility then I think once they've once they've stripped it of the pre-existing IP uh, one of two things could happen they could send it directly to a requester or on the on the city's demand give it to but the, but so but but your position is then that the city of Charlotte no longer there is no public record any longer once it's been acted upon with Ernst & Young's proprietary software? I think that they would have an obligation under the Public Records Act to strip it of the pre-existing IP. At Ernst & Young? At Ernst & Young, yes, Your Honor. So Ernst & Young would have a, a responsibility under the Public Records Act? Which is supposed to be, supposed to promote governmental transparency, not transparency of private businesses. Yes, Your Honor. Tension oh. here. I'm sorry. Oh no! Finish your answer. The, the tension here being that um, they, again, assuming that we get to that under the Womack analysis, and I think the question predicts that, um, that they would then have to abide by the Public Records Act by doing business with the, with the city. Doesn't the city have an obligation to put that in their contract then? If so, if we receive the, if we receive a request under the Public Records Act. You know, then you have to strip it so that we can make this, so that we can produce this record. I, again, in order to promote, again, in order to promote governmental transparency, which is what the, it appears very clearly that the General Assembly was aiming for. I, again, I think that there's 
perhaps some updating of the public record statute that needs to happen to answer that question? To, to account for? Y yes, Your Honor. I, I do. And I, I, I'm not meaning to be cagey. I just think that the text of the statute doesn't, it was written in the 70s that doesn't predict hyperlinks and proprietary IP. So yes, just, you're correct. Yes, Your Honor. I, I just, I don't. I'm a little confused because I, based on the last two questions, it seems like we were very focused on the IP. And it, it sounded to me like the possession wasn't a, an insurmountable barrier. Like it's either up to the third party contractor or it's up to someone to, to remove the IP issues, but the fact that the city doesn't have them isn't a, a bar here. At least that's how I understood the answers before, but I heard you earlier say city doesn't have them, doesn't have possession. I think that's part of the, the situation I find myself in is that I'm again, making an argument on behalf of a private entity that I don't represent. And that's where I was really addressing it as the private entity's responsibility. Um, again, you know, kind of circumventing that first question on, of agency under the WOMAC analysis and, and SELC, that then that, that it's really the obligation of that entity that is elected to do business with the city, not the, not the cities directly. And that, so the possession perhaps is not insurmountable, but it is, um, but but it would then rest with the private entity at that point. Your, your time is I, up. My time is up. Do, do you have any further no, questions? Do you have any further questions? Right. Thank you very much, Your Honor. Thank you, I sir. Appreciate the questions. Your Honors, we heard some remarkable concessions during the city council's argument uh, with respect to that there was no search uh, to determine whether there was any metadata or record on a city computer that was never made clear. And, and there is unquestionably an obligation to search. And we also just heard that it was Ernst & Young's requirement to strip of proprietary data and, and turnover. That is not contemplated by the Public Records Act, but what is contemplated by the Public Records Act is what is in 132-1, which is public records defined. And it states quite clearly that a public record shall mean all documents, papers, letters, maps, books, photographs, films, sound recordings, magnetic or other tapes, and electronic data processing records uh, or other documentary material. And we also have in the Public Records Act, the state archives has a job to do in terms of administering the universe of material subject to 132-1. And the state archives has said metadata is indeed public. So, so we have a statute that was intended to be living and breathing and to transcend technological changes. And we, in fact, have a state archives, and we can provide supplemental submissions if that would be helpful, that, that is determining how that changes. And there is no question, because we have a lot of decisions on this, that when a public official uses a private email server to conduct city business, that is a public record. There is no question, and again, we know this because we have decisions on it, 
that when a public official chooses to write a text message to his fellow city council members or, or to, that is a public record. I have a question. So the questionnaire that was posed without any answers, was that a public record? Once it was. No, no. Just, just yeah. they, they, they wrote it, they put it on their server. As it sat there, was that a public record? I believe that the Public Records Act contemplates some level of receipt. Okay. Now, the, there could so, be a contractual issue there in I'm terms of the contract, about, but I believe you to be asking about the Public Records Act, that's right. in which case, so it's receipt. A, it, it resides on their server. Now, the hyperlink is sent. At that point, a hyperlink is sent. Is it your position that the questionnaire is now a public record or is it still not a public record because it's not been acted upon yet? Your Honor, I actually think that, that in, in the record may be helpful in terms of being able to show what was received here. If you look at page 168 of the record, you can see the way that Ernst & Young sent these materials to City of Charlotte council members. And the notable thing is it was sent in an email uh, and thus received on a city server at a city council person's email address, official email address, no, no private so, there. So when, when this link was sent, did that then transform what sat on their <clears throat> server that hadn't been acted upon yet? Was that a public record? I'm trying to figure out the, the, the line between their proprietary information, what they were they're saying is the questionnaire and when and if that information becomes a public record. So I would say when the, hype, the email was sent, unquestionably that email, and, and I don't believe the city disputes that because, because we received what, what is at page 168 of the record as a records request. I believe the moment that city council person clicked on that hyperlink and started filling that in, we have a public record because what the Public Records Act contemplates, just the same way the open meetings law contemplates that we should have open meetings, the Public Records Act contemplates the moment the public's business is put into a document, is, is preserved in some way in a documentary form, and yes, those kinds of documents as we see, as we've discussed today, are changing every day. But the moment we have a public official conducting public business and creating some kind of record of that, that is a public record. And so the filling out of the clicking on that hyperlink, the filling out of the surveys, and it so happens that we now, of course, have these surveys because thanks to the Rule 45 subpoena and these, the, the idea that this was some, somehow proprietary, these, these are feelings, these are comments about working with fellow council member. This is the public's business. It's showing how they were getting along with their fellow council members. It, it strains credulity, to say the least, that this is somehow proprietary of Ernst & Young's. It, no more. It is simply the vessel for the thoughts that are memorialized from city council members. Your time is up. Thank you. Thank you. That, that concludes oral argument in this matter. Uh, we'll take it under advisement. I want to thank you both for your excellent arguments. Uh